Well, hello, buddy. Good to see you. I'm glad you're here. If you're watching online, welcome as well. And uh, you survived the Arctic blast. Whew! That was some weather, huh? But we're back to uh, some warmer temperatures. So during the uh, January, the first part of the year, one of the things that we've done for several years now is we've taken a book from the Bible, a short condensed book, and, and studied it together. And th the hope is this, is that maybe you thought, hey, I would like to, I I'd like to read the Bible more during the new year. Well, we'll always take January and study a book in the Bible so that we could read it together. And what I'll do is each week I'll teach on one chapter. So the book we're looking at this month is the book of 1 Thessalonians. So if it's something you wanted to explore, you can read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 multiple times through the week or chapter 2, and then we'll talk about it. And here's what I absolutely love about it. I love that I'll be studying the book as well, and I'll be teaching, but I love that you will be teaching me as well. Because I firmly, firmly believe this. And this doesn't matter if you are just unsure of who God is and you're just picking up the Bible for the first time or you're a seasoned veteran. I believe this. You never read the Bible alone. One of the things that Jesus said is that the Spirit of God would be with us whenever we studied his words. And, and God's Spirit would be our tutor and our teacher. So I think everybody in the room has felt a bit overwhelmed at times when you pick up the Bible and you think, I don't know what that means exactly. But here's the good news. You never study the scriptures by yourself. God wants to reveal himself. And so here's one of my habits. I don't know, for 30 years I've been doing this. Is whenever I come to the Bible, I come with two things. I come with a piece of uh, paper and a pen. Because I honestly believe that God is speaking. And my knowledge is limited, of course. And my understanding is partial. But God will speak. And I'm just going to bring a pen as an act of faith. I'm going to write something down. And sometimes the things I write down, there's more questions than there are answers. So I just invite you to do that in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now, Thessalonians is one of the books that we probably don't look at as often as some of the other books. Uh, in fact, I was talking with somebody and I said, we'll be studying the book of 1 Thessalonians. And they kind of looked at me funny. And I said, it's one of the books that Paul wrote. And they go, oh. Because it's a bit unique, but I think it'll be interesting for us to study. So 1 Thessalonians Join if you are so moved to do that. Before we jump into chapter one, though, I'd like to set it up. So this kind of set up understanding the context, understanding the geography will help us in the weeks ahead as we look through this book. So I want to show you, first of all, a map of the ancient world. Now, uh, Rome is ruling the known world at the time, even farther than this map goes into North Africa, all the way over to England, all the way to India. And Thessalonica is right here at the top. It's at the top of the Aegean Sea. Here is Greece down below. We've got Athens. Corinth is down here. Italy would be off to the left. And Thessalonica is a really important city in the Roman world. It's important because it has 200,000 people living in it. So oftentimes when we think of the ancient world, we think of little villages, but 200,000. So probably somewhere around twice as many people as live in the city of Billings. And you can imagine they're packed together. And why have so many people gathered there? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is it is the capital of the province of Macedonia. So all government uh, regulations go through there, offices are there. And also it's an important trade city. So of course you have this port. So things can be shipped from Italy, from Athens, all the way up. But there are two roads that converge here, two very important roads. So 
the Romans had built this massive complex of roads to link their cities. There's one road that goes all the way from Italy and it will move all the way up and meet in Thessalonica. The other road comes from the Danube River, which originates in, in what we call Germany and found its way all the way here to Thessalonica and then moved on. So it's an important city. It's a free city. Now, what did that mean in the first century? It meant this, that in 168 BC, the people of Thessalonica had sided with the right general. They had sided with Antonio. And as a reward, he said, here's what you will have. You will have fewer taxes and you will be able to elect your own Greek officials to rule your city. So there was no Roman governor that lived there. So it was this free city, a prosperous city, an important city. And let me show you the next picture, which will give us an idea of how Paul got there. So this is a, a map of modern day world. So Paul's going to start his journey here in what we call Turkey. He's going to move all the way across. He's going to go to Philippi. You can read this in the book of Acts, chapter 15, 16. And in Philippi, people begin to believe he establishes a church there. But like always happens, he's chased out of town. He's imprisoned before that. He spends a night in jail. They wrongly arrest him because he's a Roman citizen. So he sneaks out and continues to move. And he makes his way here to Thessalonica. And when he gets to Thessalonica, he does what he always does. First of all, he goes to a Jewish synagogue. So the Jewish people have been spread throughout the Roman world, mainly because of persecution. And they had established these synagogues, which were churches. It was, um, the word synagogue has to do with 12 people. So if there were 12 Hebrew men in a city, they created a synagogue where they'd come together and worship on Saturdays. So Paul, first of all, goes to the Jewish synagogue. He talks to them. They're waiting for the Messiah. And he tells them, Jesus is that person that we as Hebrews have been waiting for for centuries. A few, it says, a few Jews believed. He went for three consecutive weeks. But most of them rejected him. So then he goes to the Gentile people. Now these are Greek people because it's part of the original Greek empire and it's been folded into the Roman empire. And people begin to believe. And prominent people believe. But... The local establishment, in particular local Jews, feel threatened. So they start up a riot against Paul. And it's so threatening that the believers sneak Paul out of town at night. He ends up in Berea. So he's been there for a minimum of three weeks, up to a couple of months. And he's told this group of people who Jesus is, people have believed, but he has to flee town. So he eventually makes his way all the way down to Athens and Corinth. And he writes the book of 1 Thessalonians from one of these two cities. And even though he's in Athens, which is, I mean, it's the cultural hub of the world. It's where all the philosophers gathered. He keeps thinking about what has happened to the believers in Thessalonica. And so he looks at Timothy, this young man who traveled with him. He says, Timothy, I know it's 400 miles by sea, 300 miles by land. But I need you to go back to Thessalonica. I need you to sneak into the city. And I need you to figure out if that church is still in existence. Like, did, did it become overwhelmed when the riots happened? Like, what happened? He can't get it off his mind. So Timothy makes his way all the way back to Thessalonica. It would have been at least a two-week trip by foot. He finds 
that the church in Thessalonica has actually taken root and it's thriving. So he spends a little bit of time with them, but then hurries back to tell Paul, Paul, the church is doing well. It did take root. It's thriving. And Paul says, it is so good to hear. And he looks at Timothy and goes, "Uh, I know you just got back, but I'm going to pen a letter to them. It's the first letter that Paul writes. He's going to write many what we call epistles, which were letters to these churches. So he writes this letter, and then he looks at Timothy and says, Timothy, now I need you to take the letter all the way back to Thessalonica. It's going to help establish who they are. And in fact, I want you to stay for a little bit and then join me on the journey again. So what we're about to read is this letter that Paul writes, a city of 200,000 people, an infantile but thriving church, in a place where there's been tremendous hostility from its very beginning, he writes the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now I want to show you one more picture. This is the modern day city of Thessalonica. Now, um, the entire city has ruins, but they just built on top of it. So eventually, uh, Islamists came in, tore the city down, and they were building a parking garage. And as they begin to dig down to the parking garage, they discovered this, Ro- this Roman forum. So, you, you, like, if you went to Thessalonica now, you'd see very little. There's just, it's all buried. They've built on top of it. But here they realized this was the original Roman forum. This is where meetings happened. This is where commerce took place. This is where government offices were. So, literally, it'd be like in the middle of a very, very busy city, and you'd stop and see something like this. But that's about all we have of Thessalonica. It was a very magnificent city. Now it's a very modern city. So a little bit behind Thessalonica is we read the first chapter, you're going to sense Paul's urgency. This is one of the first churches that he's planted. He really cares. It's a very important place. This church really needs to thrive in order for people throughout the region of Macedonia to engage with the message of Jesus. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, two men who travel with, with, um, with Paul. Of course, Timothy's the one who's going to bring the letter back to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. Very formal way, very common way of opening a letter. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. You can tell he's been concerned. He says, we've been praying, we've been hoping. We remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith. So work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God. He just wants to remind them of a few things. That he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. He's saying, when I came, I didn't just bring eloquent words to you, but God did something so magnificent in your midst. It it, it wasn't me convincing you. God showed up. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So for Paul, he says joy is a gift. It's a gift from the Holy Spirit in the midst of suffering. You can have joy in the midst of suffering. 
And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned from God, uh, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, one of the things that we'll find as we look at the book of 1 Thessalonians is that in every single chapter, five chapters, every chapter, Paul is going to talk about the return of Jesus Christ. And in fact, he's going to write it at length in the last couple of chapters. It is a major theme. I look forward to studying that together. I think there are a whole lot of misunderstandings regarding what will happen when Jesus comes back. And Paul's going to clarify some of those for us. This is a big theme. So there we have the first chapter. Short, succinct. When I first read this, I thought, what in the world do we say on a weekend service about this? But as you, as you just kind of stew in it, you realize, hey, there are some important things that Paul brings out. Here's the first one. It's just going to be two points in groupings of words. The first point is this. Paul's going to talk about faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Remember, this is his first letter, but it's going to become a theme, faith, hope, and love, for all of his letters to come. 1 Corinthians 13, if you're familiar with that, called the love chapter, Paul's going to say, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Now, why are faith, hope, and love a big deal? I think all of us wish that there was some sort of litmus test to verify whether or not we had the living God working in us. Wouldn't it be nice? Anybody in the room ever had strep throat? It, you know, there's been times where it's kind of raged through our family and uh, everybody wakes up, they're talking like this. And what we always do is we send one kid to the doctor to save on copays and say, hey, would you test this kid for strep throat? And they test the kid for, and so they swab, right? They swab and then it comes back positive and you look at the doctor and you go, and there's five more of us. And he just starts handing out the antibiotics, right? Okay, all right. The whole family probably has it. Because you can verify that it's strep throat through a test. There's no way to ever verify that somebody has new life in God. Or is it? Here's what Timothy says when he comes back. He looks at Paul and he says, Paul, you were so worried about this church. But here's what I observed when I went back there. Faith, hope, and love. And Paul says, if there is faith and there is hope and there is love, that means that something spiritually, something miraculous is happening in their world. So let's talk about faith first. Faith. And, and he, it's interesting, he says, your work of faith, your work that's sponsored by faith. So here's the challenge with every religion in the world. We want to boil it down to a religion of work. That there are certain things you do in order to achieve God. There are certain things you quit doing in order to make yourself more acceptable to God. And so we have this tendency to think we work harder and therefore God would love us more. And this is what Paul says. Listen, Timothy told me that you have faith and then you're working because of your faith. You're not working to earn faith or to build faith. 
that you honestly believe that God is alive, that he has begun to change you and you can't help but begin to do things in the community, to serve people, to live sacrificially. And it's because you have faith. So work is always, it's always, always down the road from faith. When I really, really believe, then I begin to serve. So one of the unique things about Christianity, as Paul describes it, is he's not saying you're working and I'm so proud of you. He's saying you have faith and I'm so proud of you. And because you believe in this God, remember, they, had, they didn't have a Bible to study. All they had were these brief interactions, two, three months with Paul. And they said, we are honestly believing that Jesus came, died for us. He was God in the flesh to repair the damage between God and humanity. And now we believe. We believe that he's the answer to sin. We believe that he forgives us. And because we believe things are happening in our lives, we're actually producing what the Bible calls fruit. She says, faith. I can't look at you. I can't look at my friend Chris and go, hmm, you have about 70% of the faith that you currently need. I can't. I mean, whole books in the Bible are written about this, book of James. But what I can do is I can look at him and go, I see the way that you live your life. I see the way you treat your patients. I see the way you love your wife and your children. I see the way you live sacrificially. And I know that you have faith in God because nobody would live their life that way unless there was a deep faith, something that had transformed you. So he says, first of all, I see your faith. And then we want to move on to the second one. He says, I see your love. And he says, your labors of love. Okay, so in each of these, he's going to take, here's, here's a noun and here's an action. He's going to put them together. He says, so Timothy told me that you're viewing human beings differently. The people that you consider below you, because in Greek and Roman society, there were strata of human beings, and the more wealthy you were, the more value you had, and people below you, you just kind of discarded and despised and didn't pay attention to. Timothy must have said, Paul, you wouldn't believe it. They're loving people that are different than them. They see value in human life. And now there's this labor of love where they're, they're caring for the broken. They're caring for those who are deemed unacceptable, those, those who are diseased or, or challenged. And in the Roman and Greek world, if somebody had some sort of physical disability or challenge, they were ostracized and pushed to the side. And one of the unique things about the early church is they found people that were on the fringes of society, that were on the fringes of acceptance, and they pulled them in. And they said, you too have value because you're made in the image of God, regardless if you can walk, regardless if you can see, regardless if you can process information like everyone else. You are made in the image of God. And the early church confounded the Roman Empire because they loved people that the Romans disregarded as unimportant. And Paul says, Timothy told me that you're just, you're loving and that's different than what you were taught culturally. 
that, that faith that, that is leading to work and this love for people. Now with God within you, you're looking at people and, and you don't see just competition. You see, that, that person is my brother, is my sister. That person is someone who's lost. And there's compassion that moves through you. And then he says, and you also have hope. You have hope. And he says this hope is produced endurance. So hope produces endurance. Now, when we look at the word endurance in the English, we kind of think of, oh, you know, people who run a long distance and they just keep going and you're like, you're crazy. Why are you doing that? I, have to, I live up kind of by the uh, airport at the base and, you know, the airport road. There's this guy, anytime I go up there, he's running up airport road. And I'm like, you are nuts, right? That's a steep, and he'll do it like three times in a day. I'm like, man, you want to ride? Because that doesn't look fun. Hot days he's doing it. He says, this is a little bit different endurance. Remember from the very beginning, they have all this controversy in the church. The word endurance in Greek means that they're holding on really tight. So rather than think of a distance runner in endurance, Think of a bull rider, <laughs> eight seconds, ah, right? You're holding on with everything you can. He says, the reason you have endurance is because you have this hope. In those weeks I had with you, I told you that one day Jesus was coming back. We don't know when, but you're holding on and you're holding on for a day when God returns and he's gonna make all things new and everything that's unjust and everything that's broken, he'll fix. And so you're holding on, even in this controversial city, even in this place where you're receiving pressure, you're holding on and your hope hasn't produced endurance in your life. Faith, hope, and love. Now, secondly, I'd like to look at three more phrases that Paul uses as he encourages them. So he says, now, not only do you have faith, hope, and love, but he says, I want to single out these three ideas, that you're loved, that you're chosen, and you've changed. You're loved, you're chosen, and you've changed. So later in the book, Paul will get into behavior. Because remember, that they don't have a Bible yet, they don't know anything, and he's going to talk to them about like how to live their life. But one of the most important things in reading the New Testament, this is, this is what Jesus did, this is what Paul does, this is what Peter does, is they will always, always, always emphasize identity before behavior. Okay, Identity before behavior. What religion does is it always emphasizes behavior before identity. But Jesus would look at someone and he would say, you are loved, you are forgiven. Your identity needs to be established before your behavior can ever change. And so Paul is going to, here's your identity. I want you to remember this. This is so important for Jenny and I. Any church that we'll ever serve in will emphasize identity before behavior. Raising kids, identity before behavior is like you have to know who you are. You have to know what God has done before you could ever begin to ever act it out. Okay? But religion tends to say, oh, no, no, do all the right things. Make sure that's accomplished, and then we'll figure out who you are. No, no, no. You're loved, you're forgiven. So he says, you're loved, first of all. You're loved. I want you to know this. God loves you. That's what he tells the Thessalonians in chapter 1. This is, 
I know this is incredibly simple. Incredibly simple. Believing that God loves us. Chris just talked about that a moment ago. But I will tell you personally, in the 30-some years that I've been following Jesus, I have wasted so much effort because I don't, at the core of who I am, sometimes believe that God loves me. I get caught up in the idea that I could make him love me more if I just did the right things, if I did more, if I tried harder, if I made myself better, then he would love me more. One of the ongoing themes of the New Testament is this, is that God's love for human beings is a gift and it is total and it is complete. God cannot love you or me any more than he does at this moment. For God so loved the world, his love was total and complete. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. He's already given everything. But there's something in me that always, I feel insecure. I think, well, I bet he'd love me more if I did this, if I did that. I was just at an awards banquet. It was for one of my sons who plays football. And, um, you know, there, there's just some stellar athletes. These kids just won the state championship two years in a row. And, and they're giving out awards. And, uh, you know, it's so much fun. I'm clapping for my son. But there are a few athletes on the team that, like, they just keep coming up. You know, like, state player of the year, Gatorade player of the year. And, like, these kids, just like, that kid needs a trophy room. He's got more certificates and trophies and everybody's clapping. And then I'm looking down front and there are all these freshmen that, you know, never played. And they're like, Ugh. right? And they're like, so there's superheroes and then there's everybody else. So what we do culturally, and I get it, is we reward people who have talents, abilities, achieve certain things. They're super intelligent, very industrious. They know how to make a lot of money. And we think, woo, that person, mm. But God's economy is completely different. His love is total and it is complete and it has nothing to do with what you have accomplished or how badly you failed. The love of God is total and it's complete. And so Paul says, remember that labor of love thing? He says, when you realize how much you are loved, you start to serve. You just realize I'm secure now. So I was trying to finish up college and I'd fallen in love with a girl. Her name was Jenny. I was trying to work full time to get through college. But one summer... I took on a job at a restaurant. It was, my parents had moved to Iowa, and they said, come back, spend a summer with us before we get married. And I'm like, Iowa? And they're like, yeah, Colorado to Iowa. Uh. So I went back to spend time with them, and I found this job where apparently in Iowa there are like no labor laws whatsoever because they let me work 90 hours a week. And I didn't care because I didn't know anybody in Iowa, and the only thing to look for that summer in Iowa was the state fair because they had a cow made out of butter. You know, that was like the big thing that we were waiting for. Full-size cow made out of butter. I'm not kidding you. And so I would take on everybody's shifts, and I worked 70, 80, 90 hours a week, and I didn't care. You know why I didn't care? Because I wasn't just saving money for tuition. I was saving money for an engagement ring. And I'd say, hey, bring it on. 
I don't care how much I work here because I am in love and I'm trying to buy an engagement ring. And the work just, it, the summer flew by. I didn't care that I didn't sleep. I was in love and I'd do anything. This labor, when I realize that I'm loved, when I realize how much God loves me, I, I serve, I serve. So he says, first of all, this love, you are absolutely, totally loved. Get a hold of that. Let it seep deep within you. But after you know that you're loved, you have to know that you're chosen. You're chosen. You're chosen. And why was that important? Well, there's this ongoing tension. See, Jewish people had this long history and God had worked through them and done these marvelous things. And God said, you will be my people. And I'm going to actually send my solution to the world's problems through the Jewish people. But it was hard for the Jews when Jesus came to think that God could love everybody else as much as he loved them. Okay, they were unique. So they're like, nah, God couldn't love these people as much. Now you remember in this city of Thessalonica, there's a few Jewish believers, but the whole church for the most part is made up of non-Jewish people, Greeks and Romans. And so the Jews would come back in after Paul left, and they did this throughout his journeys, wherever he went. Read the book of Acts. They'd say, hey, 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 you know, we heard Paul was here, and we heard you're believing that Jesus is the Messiah. We're really happy for you. But Paul left a few things out. You're not quite as special as he told you you were. Uh, God can't choose you until you begin to follow all of the Old Testament laws, which was the first two-thirds of the Bible, and, gentlemen, you'll need to be circumcised because God can't choose anybody unless they're circumcised. And that's not a tradition in the Greek-Roman world. They're like, what? Like, mm. In order to be fully chosen, you have to do all these rituals and you have to follow all these rules. And the churches were just perplexed. And Paul kept writing letters to say, don't listen to them. They're turning this into a religion. No, God loves you and he has chosen you as you are. You have to grasp that. He believes in you. So Paul talks about these ideas of predestination and these ideas of you are chosen. And what he's doing is he's combating the religious people who come in and say, no, 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 no. God can never choose you until you clean up your act, until you do all the right things. Paul says, you are chosen. So after Christmas, we drove uh, to see family. We hadn't been back uh, for some time. And on the 26th, we went and had dinner with Jenny's sister who lives in the Seattle area. And uh, we're just hanging out. And she goes, guys, did I tell you I got a dog? And we're like, no, you got a dog? She's like, you're not going to believe it. He is so adorable. And she brings up her pictures, right? And she shows us this picture of a dog. And I'm a, I, I love dogs. I've got two dogs. This is the ugliest dog <laughs> I have ever seen. When I looked at it, here's the first thing that came to mind. You remember Princess Bride and the, the rodents of unusual size? Remember when he's in the fire swamp and they like bite his, his shoulder, right? I'm like, oh, that's a rodent of unusual size. That is the ugliest dog. And I'm trying not to act shocked. And I'll, I'm like, where did you find it? She's like, at the pound. And I'm like, yeah, obviously. Like, I'd get rid of that dog too. She's like, it's only bit the kids a couple times. I'm like, that is a horrible, horrible dog. But she's in love with his dog, right? She's absolutely in love with it. And, and I'm, I'm trying to, as I'm like leaving dinner, I'm like, why would anybody choose this dog who bites people and it just looks like a big rat? And, oh, it doesn't make any sense, does it? But she was at the pound and it was probably like 
ooh, nobody's ever going to choose you, so come join my family. I don't know. But she was in love with it. See, this, this whole idea of being chosen, again, we get mixed up and we think, well, maybe God would choose me if I did all the right things. But here's what Paul says. He chose you. Why? Because he loves you. But I'm not the smartest. I'm not the most handsome. I'm not the most religious. I'm not the most well-behaved. doesn't matter. He chose you. And he wants the people in Thessalonica to know you're his. This isn't an accident. You're loved and you're chosen. And lastly, he says, and I want you to know that you're being changed. You're being morphed. You're being transformed. The last part of the chapter he goes back to this whole idea. He says, Timothy came back to me and he told me about your love. He, he told me about your faith that's producing works. And, and guys, you're not going to believe this, but you're having an impact on all the province of Macedonia. People are talking about it. They're talking about the people in Thessalonica that believed and they accepted the word. And now this church is growing. And this church would grow to be one of the more influential churches in the ancient world. And Paul is just like, I am so proud of you. Here's one of the problems with faith. Most of the time, my steps are so slow that I don't know if I'm making any progress. Anybody ever felt that way? Like, am I changing? Am I more like Jesus? I'm not really sure. But here's what Paul does. He says, I know that you are changing. I know that there's progress moving forward. And he just wants to applaud them. He wants to paint this image of God that God is proud of you, that God is moving in your midst, that he is transforming you from the inside out. Not as religion says, from the outside in, but he is shaping and forming you and you're a different person. As I read this, I can't help but think of like what it was like raising little kids. If you're an aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa, your teacher, you've seen this. Like, how about when you teach a kid to try to use the bathroom, right? They sit on the toilet and like if something actually happens, everybody's like, woo, so proud of you. And the little kid's like, really? I'll do that some more then. You're like, yes, please do that more. You make a big deal out of a little thing to let them know they're making progress. Now, if, if you're 40 years old and you come out of the bathroom and the family's like, woo, that's awkward, right? You should have that down by now. But, but you reward the little things. You celebrate the little movements forward. When, when your kid draws a picture, your grandchild draws a picture, it's probably terrible. You know, everybody looks like a dwarf or a giraffe or there's like too many legs and too many arms. And like my kids would bring a picture and go, Daddy, that's you. And I'm like, oh, really? Oh, but what do you do? You like put it on the fridge and you're like, you are such a good artist. None of my kids are good artists. They're not, like they're terrible, but like I'm so proud of you. Paul's painting this picture. He's like, I am so proud of you. Your God is so proud of you. Here's what they've been living with for centuries. They've been trying to appease Apollos and Aphrodite and Hades and Athena. The gods that they were taught ruled the world. Here's, here's what it looked like to be a Greek worshiping your gods. Is the gods were always angry. 
And what you did is you worked really hard to appease the wrath of the gods. You tried to make them happy, and so you brought them sacrifices, and you did religious acts, and you did whatever they needed. You gave the gods money because if they're angry, they can make you sick, they can hurt your children, they can make your crops die, they can make your business fail. And so as a Greek, for centuries, they've been trying to make the angry gods happy, appease the wrath of the gods. And Paul Paul is telling them, this new way of living, you found the living God. You don't have to appease him. He already loves you completely. You don't have to make yourself presentable. He's already chosen you. You don't have to change everything overnight. He's working within you to make you new. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this beautiful book. Thank you for a group of people in Thessalonica who accepted a radical new message, one that was so different from what they had known in the past. It changed everything. It changed the way they lived. It changed the way they loved. It changed who they believed in, and it changed their eternity. God, I think we suffer from some of the same challenges that the Thessalonians did. Lord, would there be faith, hope, and love at work within us? Those are the hallmarks. The living God is within us. Lord, I think most of us in the room, we struggle with really embracing the idea that God loves us. Not for what we've done, not for what we've accomplished, but he simply loves us. Lord, will that filter into the core of who we are? Would there be a security that arises within us? Would our identity be based upon this idea that God loves us and we're chosen? We're chosen. then, Lord, will that change just happen naturally? As the God of the universe begins to recreate broken human beings, making them look more and more like him. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Hey, everybody, God bless you. Be the hands and feet, mouthpiece of Jesus. You are loved. If you're starting a relationship with God, head to that I Have Decided sign. I want to give you a a book and put that in your hands. Otherwise, have a great week.